Good morning, Christ Church. All right, today we are continuing this summer series called Simply Christian, where we've been following along N.T. Wright's book, uh, Simply Christian. And um, just by way of recap where we've been so far, we've looked at the different echoes of a voice, different longings that all humans have that ultimately find their source and fulfillment in God. And then for the past four weeks, we've been looking at the story of Scripture. Uh, we call it, where the way N.T. Wright says it in this book, is you're staring at the sun, looking at the thing that gives light to everything else. So we've been talking about this great rescue plan of God, God, the one who's made heavens and earth, his people who have walked away from him, and how he's entered into creation, first through uh, calling this one family Abraham, and then through Abraham and his descendants, ultimately in Jesus, finding fulfillment, finding freedom. And then last week, we looked at the coming of the Spirit and how we get brought into the life of the church. Today, we're kind of rounding a corner, and for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about this last section, reflecting the image, which is to say, how do we live out this Christian life? Like in light of this story that we've heard about this God who enters into the rescue, how do we live it out? How do we reflect it? How do we, in our day-to-day lives in 21st century Austin, uh, we reflect this sort of God that we worship? And today we're going to be talking and focusing on worship. That is how we respond to God and then how worship propels us into mission, uh, how to participating with him on his activity to redeem the whole world. Some of the other things we'll look at uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at Scripture, what Scripture is and um, how it teaches us and leads us closer to God. We'll look at things like um, ethics, which is just a big word for how do we live this out faithfully. Um, We'll look at being belonging in a committed church community. But today, it's going to be worship, what it is, what worship does Uh, not just as we worship God, but what it actually does in transforming us, and then how it propels us into mission is our direction for today. And I want to begin with a quote uh, from N.T. Wright. He writes this. He says, Worship means literally acknowledging the worth of someone or something. It means recognizing and saying that something or someone is worthy of praise. It means celebrating the worth of someone or something far superior to oneself. And worship, our word, it comes from that old English word, worthship, where you literally ascribe worth to something else. You say, this thing is of value. This thing is worthy. I'm ascribing worth to it. I'm saying something about what it is. It's valuable. Noticing a difference. This is not common like everything else. There's a difference between it and other things, so I ascribe worth to it. And I was thinking about this. This is kind of just a a bit of a concept, so how might we think about it? And I've got um, two examples I want to share to making sense of worship is ascribing worth to something. Um, The first, and I'll just ask you, you can think in your own mind, uh, is there anyone famous you really admire? Like any famous person that you think, I really admire that person, I really like them, or uh, you, know, you might even have just a, a, a fondness for this person. Have you ever met someone that you really admired? Have you ever met this famous person? And what does it feel like when you meet them? When I was growing up, nine years old, um, I, was, I grew up in, uh, down a little bit south of Birmingham in deep south Alabama. And um, I, was, I played a lot of different sports, uh, baseball and football and different things. And growing up in the 80s, 
The person I admire the most, some of you will know this name, is who I consider the greatest athlete of the 20th century. In fact, I don't even consider it. It is beyond dispute. This is the greatest (laughs) athlete of the 20th century. Bo Jackson, some of you know his name, and some head nods as soon as I say that. Others of you are going to have to go back and Google who was Bo Jackson. His career got cut short, um, but he was a phenomenal athlete. I mean, there's clips of him as a baseball player running up outfield walls. As a football player, he's indomitable. And he, I mean, he was just this force to be reckoned with. And when I was nine years old, he was coming to play in a ballpark not too far from me. And I had had some of his autographs. I had, through some different connections, I had a, a connection to him. He had actually played at a rival high school of my grandmother's. My grandmother was a high school principal, and um, he was in the, the district, and so she had gotten me a few autographs. So as he's coming to play in a nearby ballpark, I'm making my way down to see him. I've got a huge speech rehearsed in my head. You know, he's there early signing autographs for all the kids, and there's a huge line of, of kids everywhere. And I've got a speech in my mind about Bo Jackson, about how he of this person. And I forget the whole speech, and I just stick the baseball out and say, sign it. <laughs> Thank you. Walk away on my way. There's something that happened in that moment. Noticing the difference of this person who I admired so much, meeting him for the first time, I recognize there's a difference between he and I. So much so that I'm, I'm tongue-tied. I, I can't even speak about it right now. This micro-difference between two humans is something of what we're talking about, what N.T. Wright's talking about in that quote. There is a macro difference between God and humanity. He is not like us. We are his creation. He is creator. He is the majestic one, the high and lifted up one. He is the one that when you come into his presence, you can't help but fall down in worship. You ascribe worth to him. You say, you are different than me. You are better than me. You are of a different sort, of a different set altogether. And I ascribe worth to you. That's why N.T. Wright says this, the second quote. He says, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. You see this God, this God who is the creator God who has stepped down into the world and taken on human flesh, giving his life on the cross. When you see this God, the natural reaction is worship. In fact, not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet fully understood who he is or what he's done. Worship is the first act of a Christian. It's saying, I ascribe worth to you. It is the main act of your life to worship this God. It is the final task of the Christian is to worship God. Some of you have maybe heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism before. This is It's a question and answer catechism talking about all the essentials of Christianity, like who is God and who is humanity. It's written and compiled in the 17th century, and um, the first question goes like this. The first question says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And what it's asking is, what is the purpose of humanity? What are we here for? Why do we exist At a macro level, what is the purpose of your life? And then in a day-to-day sense, what are you here for? How do you make sense of your daily activities of doing the laundry and chores around the house, going to work, spreadsheets, friendships? How do you make sense of it all? The big picture, little picture. What is the chief end of humanity? That's a question, and it answers it this way. It says the answer is 
to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What were you made for? To glorify God, to worship him, and to enjoy him forever. Here's a second example. Some of you this summer have been uh, going to Colorado for vacation. I think Texans exit to Colorado. Many of you do. And um, if you've ever driven to Colorado, there is a, a point where you cross the state line into Colorado. And if you've never done this before, you might have in your imagination, as soon as I get to Colorado, I'm going to see mountains. But if you've driven this before, you know it's not true. You cross into Colorado, and it's actually quite flat for a while. In fact, the first third of Colorado, when you drive into it, you might wonder, I, did I cross Kansas? Did I make a wrong turn at some point? We're, there's supposed to be mountains here at some point. And then it'll happen that you come over a ridge, and you can see in the distance the mountains. You know that moment of seeing the mountains. And they're not actually all that impressive. You can tell that they're mountains, and you notice them, but you don't yet have a, a sense of, of the awe of the mountains. You're just aware of them. But then it's different if you've ever climbed a mountain, if you've ever been on a mountain, if you've ever gotten lost in one of its side forests going up it, if you've ever lost your breath as you ascend higher and higher into the heavens, if you've ever climbed up to the point and looked down at a precipice and realized the danger your life is in, the awe of standing on top of this thing, seeing the magnificence of its bigness and your smallness on it. It's a second example of how we might think of this, how we think of worship. We often talk about God at a distance, and you're just thinking about God. But as you approach him, as you become to get nearer and nearer to him, not just looking in the distance, but actually entering into his presence, worshiping with other believers, receiving communion, the sacrament of sacraments, and coming near God, you are finding yourself on the mountain itself in relationship with this God, and you recognize not just your smallness, but his greatness and his bigness. When we use the, the old word, his awfulness, which means full of awe, inspiring awe in us. You know, there's a word in the Old Testament for glory, and the word is kavod, K-A-V-O-D. That word kavod means glory, but it also means something that has weight. You might think of something like a king's crown. It shines, but it also has weight to it. There's a, a weightiness to the glory of God. We might wonder, as we worship, as we're worshiping God, does anything happening to us? What happens to us as we are worshiping this God? And N.T. Wright says that there are two things happening as we worship this resurrected God. Two things happen to us. And it's a long quote, but I'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. He says, this brings us to the first of two golden rules at the heart of spirituality. The first is, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object you worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. And you can think of people who uh, perhaps you know who no longer think in terms of relationship, but everything is calculated. Everything is thinking about, will, what will this cost me? What, what effect on my time or my production will this have? Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess or pleasure fulfillment. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. So what happens when you worship the creator God 
whose plan to save the world and put it to rights has been accomplished by the lamb who was slain? The answer comes like this in the second golden rule. Because you were made in God's image, worship makes you more truly human. When you gaze in love and gratitude at the God in whose image you were made, you indeed grow. You discover more and more of what it means to be fully alive. You might remember that quote from St. Irenaeus. It said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. To worship God is to become more fully yourself. You become like what you worship. Worship anything else in all of creation, you'll become like it, but you'll be corrupted by it because nothing else can sustain your worship. Worship God, who you were made to worship, and you will find yourself becoming like him, other-directed, full of love, filled with joy, this life coming from you. We become like what we worship, and to worship God is to become more fully human. Okay, that's the setup. That's the whole background that you need for what we're discussing today in Isaiah 6. So if you have your scripture, if you have your Bible, open Isaiah 6. If you have your, uh, the bulletin, if you got a bulletin when you came in and the scripture handout in there, look at our first reading, Isaiah 6. And this is one of those classic scenes in the Bible where you're watching a human encounter God and you're watching what happens to him. And we see here in a moment, uh, just this is, this is what worship is and then how worship propels you even into mission. Here's what we've looked at so far. Worship is recognizing God is worthy of praise. Worship is the most natural reaction to encountering God, and we become like what we worship. Now, Isaiah, a couple things to know about him. This is um, quite a while ago. This is in the 8th century B.C. Uh, he is, he's, a Jerusalem, he's in Jerusalem. He's a well-to-do priest, and he's going to the temple for some priestly activity that day. And he's going to go into the temple, going about his normal business, when he encounters this vision of God. And things that are going on in his culture at that time, uh, there's a rise of a new empire, and there's pressure on the Israelites. Are they going to follow God, or are they going to follow this new empire? And Isaiah is going to be the prophet to call them back constantly to following God. So he shows up at the temple this day, uh, and as he does, this vision happens, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, means the burning ones, uh, angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah is encountering God. He's no longer looking at the distant mountains, but he is on the mountain. He's on the precipice, the edge, encountering the Lord. And the difference between he and God has become so apparent that his reaction is to say, Woe to me! I am undone for standing in the presence of God. He's in the deepest mode of worship, a full vision of the revealed Lord. You might have the same reaction as Isaiah when seeing or when encountering God. God, I'm, I'm not worthy to stand in your presence. I'm not fit for you. But look how God responds, verse 6. 
One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth. I think it's significant he touches his mouth. This is Isaiah, who's going to be the prophet, who's going to be called to speak. He's cleansing this mouth. And he said, see, with this, I've touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And here's the consistent picture of Scripture, that when we come to acknowledge and recognize our sinfulness, our first thought is that God is going to run from us. But what you see in Scripture is that rather than running from us, God comes to us at the point of us acknowledging our sin. Like every time a human in Scripture sees God and says, I'm sinful, get away from me. You think that God would go away from them, but God in his grace and in his mercy always comes and atones for sin. This angel, this seraphim, has taken a coal from the the altar. There's been a sacrifice on the altar. He takes the coal. He touches the prophet's mouth. This is foreshadowing one day will come a true sacrifice. One day Jesus will come to touch our hearts and take away all sin. God doesn't run away from our sin. He runs towards us, bringing a way that we can come back to him. And then look at what happens to Isaiah. Having been touched by grace, verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And you remember that picture, you become like what you worship. Now here is Isaiah saying, God, I've, I've encountered your grace. I've encountered you, the true God. Use me. Like however you will, send me into your, you're the God who comes into the world to rescue the world. Let me be part of that mission. Let me go with you. Let me be part of, of your work to redeem the world. See, mission isn't something extrinsic. It's not something else that we have to do. It is the natural overflow of worship. When you encounter this one true God, you say, Lord, I want to be with you wherever you are. And your vision, your goal is to be in the world, bringing rescue and healing to the world. This is at the heart of the Lord's Prayer that we pray every week. God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be part of that process. Here I am, send me. The connection between worship and mission. And so I want to talk now about mission. We're going to transition from worship and speak more directly about mission. And um, today I want to invite a special guest with us. Uh, We have today, um, Monik, if you'd come on up here. Monik uh, Korea is here today. He is a global consultant for our diocese for C4SO. Here you go. He's in town right now. Uh, We have um, a a conference going on, Mutuality and Mission, that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now. And Monik has come in from Singapore um, on Thursday night and has remarkably been fully awake every time I've seen him. I have no idea what, how the amount of coffee you might be consuming or sleep you might be getting, um, but has just been fully present and filled with joy. And um, I want to talk and ask him a couple of questions today, particularly about mission, because he is our global consultant for our diocese, also because he's a church planter. Um, he and I were talking earlier. He's about to begin doctoral work at Asbury Seminary, which is where I went to school. And I've actually, we found out, I've listened to him preach before in Kentucky uh, six or seven years ago, and we were joking. He was like, you can verify. I I will only say good things, and it's very true. Um, So we're excited to have you today, and if you would, let's warmly welcome Monik to share with us right now. Monik, I wonder, and feel free, you can set your Bible right here if you want. Um, 
What, how might you, maybe just as a way of, of introduction, is there anything you would say about this Isaiah 6 passage? I know it's a, a common passage for uh, missionary leaders to speak out of. Yeah, I think you've, you've said it so well already, Matt. Um, but we were just talking about this before the service, and, and I think when he said about how worship, um, mission is not just extra. Mission and worship go together. Uh, they're, they're really two sides of the same coin. You cannot encounter the living God in worship without being called into His mission in the world. So we're all called into it. Okay, well, I want to ask you a few questions. And um, the first one is, again, a little bit about worship and mission. And there's so much changing in missionary activity today. And even in the way that we conceive of what missionary activity is. So a quote from John Stott says, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. So from your perspective, can you update us? What missionary trends should we be aware of today? What are things that a congregation like ours needs to know about the state of missions in the world? Okay, thank you. It's a great question. Um, I, love, I love that quote. And, and the, the scriptures really are a missionary text. We have a God who is on mission to rescue sinful people and bring them to relationship, just like what we read today. He wants to encounter you and change you. Um, and so we get to join in with the mission of God. Um, we live in a great big world, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's so complicated to think of any other place except Texas. I hear that Texas is its own country. Um, and you think, my, my goodness, I have had enough, I have, uh, enough uh, trouble trying to get along with my neighbors, let alone think about the ends of the earth. Um, but I want to say that God has always called His church to be about the ends of the, of the, of the earth. Um, and what is happening in our world today is absolutely amazing. Uh, we live in a day where missions uh, is growing in many parts of the world that used to just receive missionaries. Uh, just to give you an idea, in the year 1900, 82% of Christians lived in the Western world, what we call the global north. So in North America and in Europe, right by far Australia, um, all, most of the Christians live there, 82%. Today, 67% of all Christians live in what is called the global south, the majority part of the world. So that's Asia. Africa, and Latin America, and it's ever-increasing. There has been a shift uh, in terms of global Christian numbers, and this has happened because faithful men and women from this land and from the West came and brought the gospel uh, to Asia, to Africa, to, the, to Latin America, and God has been pleased to bring a harvest into, those king, into His kingdom from those places. But what He's doing in our day is... The challenge of being a believer, a Christian, a disciple here in the West, where we're seeing uh, the, the downturn, the struggle of our cultures uh, that are walking, increasingly walking away from God, post-Christian, post-modern. They don't want to listen anymore. They think they know, and so they're not interested. And so everywhere, particularly in Europe, it's, it's, it's stark, um, but even here in North America, we're starting to see it. Um, the decline of, of the church as a whole. But in the other sense, in the global south, in the majority world, the churches are thriving and growing and 
vibrant. You get countries where maybe 90% of the population, say in Africa and the Congo, for example, will be in church on a Sunday. Think about it. Full of people. Uh, gospels being preached. Disciples are being made. So this is an amazing thing. But let's not get discouraged because God has not given up on any part of this world, let alone the Western world. To see Texas that a little bit, perhaps, as from the West to the rest of the world. But now we might conceive of missions as uh, perhaps from everywhere to everywhere. And even as we've talked this weekend at the Diaspora Conference, that there's a sense of um, there are nationalities and ethnicities scattered all throughout the world. Can you might maybe talk a little bit, bit about that, how that influences our thoughts on missionary activity and even share some examples if you could? Sure. I'd be glad to do that. You know, God is on the move and God is mixing up the peoples of the nations. And your country in particular uh, has been receiving and always has been helping people uh, who need a home. Uh, but the, the peoples of the nations are moving here, whether as refugees or workers migrant and migrating here to, to live and work in this great land. So all over America, we're seeing uh, the rise of diaspora peoples. I mean, America has always been a melting pot, but more so today than ever. And I think this is part of God's grand design, that even as we struggle sometimes with the decline of the church here, the church is polarized, you know, politicized, there are all sorts of things going on, uh, and the challenge of the culture that's ever invading us, you know, with secularism and relativism and driving us away from the gospel, for encounter with the living God. Uh, God is doing a great thing in our day, and He's bringing the nations to us. Uh, and what we need to recognize is not to see this necessarily as a threat, you know, oh, some strange Latino church is coming down the road and they're speaking in Spanish, I don't understand what they're saying, and, you know, I'll, I'll just keep to my own little church where everybody speaks the same language and looks like me. Um, here's the challenge. Can we see this as something God is doing? So we, were, we had a C4SO seminar a few months ago and we invited Sam George, who's an Indian, but working in America, he works at uh, Wheaton College, He's a professor and he speaks and teaches particularly on diaspora ministry and missions, the peoples uh, all over, scattered all over the place. And he made this point that people look at what's going on in America and increasingly diaspora churches coming in, Latin America, African churches, Asian churches, um, and they're saying, oh, what's happening is the de-westernization of the church. And he said, that's the wrong way of looking at it. Don't say the de-Westernization of the church. Say the globalization of the church. God is making us to be a global family. The church has always and will always be a global family. Revelation 7, 9, that beautiful picture before heaven, we're of all tribes and nations and languages. We are family. We need each other. So I want to encourage you as a church, as we've been talking about this in the Diaspora Network here in Austin, how can we help? How can we partner together? How can we participate in what God is doing in our day? Well, maybe on, on that point, even give some practical tips. What might a congregation like Christ Church in Austin, what does practically partnering look like? What, does, yeah. what are the practical considerations you might give us? Yeah, well, I, I think you have, you have, uh, we have in our diocese right here a diaspora network, which Jonathan Kinberg is, is leading and doing a great work. And what he's doing is partnering with diaspora churches, building relationships. So I want to challenge us that 
we don't have to pack our bags and go to the ends of the earth. Well, if God calls you, then please do. Uh, talk to us, we'll help you. Um, but where you are, you are called to be a people on mission. And so even in your city are peoples of the nations uh, or peoples of a different ethnicity. Uh, I want to ask that a question. Have you ever had in your home someone who looks like me, someone of a different ethnicity? Maybe today's the, the, the time to look out. See your neighbors, see your, your colleagues, invite them if, if they're a diaspora people or from a different ethnicity. Here's the, the time for us to begin to build friendships. And that's what, something we can all do. Build friendships with people who don't look like us. It may be a bit scary because sometimes you don't quite know, well, what if they eat something that we don't eat? Or what, you know? You're going to be surprised. A lot of these diaspora people who come to our city are hungry for friendship. They, they, they feel alone in this strange new land. You have the advantage. You can say, well, come, let, let's have coffee together. Let's talk. I'd love to know about your culture. Ask them questions. Find out where they are. And through that, begin to pray. So I would say the first thing you do is you pray. Lord, give me an opportunity to build this friendship with my neighbor or the person that I meet at work. Um, secondly, partner. Partner with things like the diaspora network that we have in our diocese. God has blessed Austin of all places in C4SO with a diaspora network. We have no excuse, guys, right? We have a diaspora network right here. So we can partner with what Jonathan is doing, uh, and, and Christ Church is a part of that already. But let's get more involved as people in the pews called into God's mission. So pray, partner, and finally participate. Do something. You know, that it starts with just doing even a simple thing. Um, and, and so sometimes we make mission to be more complicated than it is. We think, oh, you've got to get a theological degree like Matt and, and know so much, and then you can share the gospel. Um, the gospel is simply being who you are uh, as, as a, a truly human being, you know, who worships the living God and has encountered Him, and then be that friend to your neighbor. Uh, care for them. Uh, if they have a need, try to help them. And then pray for them. Pray, Lord, give me an opportunity. Let them ask me or give me a chance to tell them my story. Why do I worship this God who is holy, 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 who atones for my sin and wants me to come in and not be driven away? And then you, God will give you a, an opportunity. Mm, That's thank practical, you, I hope. Yes, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. You sit. Worship is encountering the one true God, falling face down before him and saying, God, the difference between me and you there is incomparable, and yet in your grace and mercy, you have brought us to yourself. Mission is the overflow of that. Going to the world, sharing with all peoples the good news, Jesus is now Lord. And so I would invite, Monica, if you would, uh, just would you pray over us along the themes of worship and mission this morning? Thank you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you're a God who desires us to know you and to enjoy you forever. Lord, what a blessed hope and invitation has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we be a people who respond to you in worship, in worship that you alone 
deserve. And as we do that, Lord, let us be transformed to be like you. And let us be, be know, become what it means to be truly human. And Lord, even as we do that, then we join you in your great desire for this world that is lost. For you so loved this world in all its brokenness, in all its mess, in all its rivalry and bitterness and temptations. You love this world so much you sent your son to die that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. And so we're called into your mission. Lord, help us to start where we are. Help us, Lord, empower us by your spirit so that we may be that friend uh, to that person down the street uh, who doesn't know you as far from you, so that we may extend an invitation to uh, a new ethnic uh, friend, someone of a different ethnicity, and say, would you like to come and uh, come to my house, have a, have a meal together? Lord, simple steps, but as we do it, we're joining in your great mission. We thank you that you're a God who came to search. We thank you for that first question that you asked in Genesis when Adam and Eve had sinned, you did not banish them. You came looking for them and you said, where are you? You asked that and you have been living in us, Lord. Amid that, that answer to that missionary question comes searching. You sent Jesus to be the greatest missionary on earth so that he may rescue us from our sins. And then Jesus, as he did in John 20, 21, says to the disciples and by extension to all of us, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So help us, Lord, empower us. Uh, help us to join in with both your worship and your mission in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.